Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. And today we're revisiting some of our favorite stories from the past few months with a show we're calling Hall of Fame. We'll head out on the water as we visit Virginia's barrier islands. I was raised the way most hog islanders were raised. Let's do with what you got, but don't ask for too much because you may not be able to handle it. And we'll swing by a D.C. barbershop that's been a community anchor for a hundred years. Well, I've been coming in here for just a whole lot of years. I keep telling him every time I come in here, he puts more gray hair up there. I don't understand that. <laughs> Plus, we'll visit a tiny town with a major role in the local bluegrass scene. And we'll talk with D.C. residents who are taking the idea of downsizing to a whole new level. This is a glorified trailer park, you know. It's a, it's, I, I would like to say it's a beautiful trailer park, but it really is, you know, four small houses on wheels. But first, we begin our show with a story of love flourishing in some pretty inhospitable circumstances. Brian Hawkins and Davinia Miles Hawkins met on the streets of Washington, D.C. They've both been homeless since about 2009 and first met that very year. After four years of getting to know each other, they pooled their limited resources and got married on Valentine's Day of last year. But their first year of marriage was tougher than even they expected. It included spending many nights apart from one another after Brian violated his parole. They met me back in February at Miriam's Kitchen, where they often go for a free breakfast, to talk about how their romance began and how they found an antidote to the isolation of homelessness. It was all love. <laughs> I first walked through the park one day, and my wife was sitting on the bench, and she said something to me. She rolled up to me. She was the one who pursued me and kind of threw me off, because most men always pursue women. And uh, she hit me with it. If I leave the park, then I'll take a piece of her soul with me. I was looking at her like, is this woman all right? <laughs> but I could see she had a smile on her face, and I thought she was just playing. So I told her, I said, okay, well, just hold tight, baby. I'll be right back. And I need to go over here to the store. As I came back from the store, she came and sat down and said, I mean, we and her started conversating from then on in, and that was all love. Something about his smile. I said, we hung out, and we talked, and then I took him to my daughter's house and let him stay over there with me for a while and get to meet my grandkids and my daughter. She loved him. we just been together ever since. stayed together constantly. We was always together doing everything, going to the movies, going out to eat, uh, going different places, showing the museums, you know, things like that. Things that people don't do anymore. You know what I mean? That's what we decided doing. And then we just been together ever since. We panhandled the money. We got it together. And we decided we're going to go do it on Valentine's Day since everybody's birthday is in February. His birthday's the 17th, mine's the 20th. Why don't we just have everything big happen in one month? So we got married. I've been on parole for almost 26 years. Uh, it was for distribution of crack cocaine when I was a kid. I didn't know any better. I, mean, I know better now, but I just didn't know any better then. Me and my wife was walking down the street, and I grabbed her by a coat and told her, come on. So the police officer thought that we were having a, you know, a fight or whatever. So he took me to jail, whatever case may be, they stepped me back for a couple months. They put me in Federal City. It's a place where if you don't have a place to live, the transition house, you don't have a place to live, that's where they put you. And my wife couldn't come with me. 
Well, we have a tent at 15th and the overhang where the caribou is, we have a tent. We put this down every night, but we have to pick it up every day. It's nothing like having your own home. I would have to build everything that he does. I would have to do it myself. This was my cardboard. This was this wasn't a tent. This was cardboard, you know. And I would have to build it. It might not be as tall as my husband would like it, but it would be around me where nobody would be able to invade my space. So we've been through I don't like to say it already, but hell. You know what I mean? But we made it. You know, we're still here, we're surviving. People always keep saying, man, how can two homeless people be on the street and be that much in love? Well, I love my wife. Dearly, most definitely, I would never cheat on, never do anything wrong. I will always show my wife the love and respect that she's supposed to have. Because the one thing that we never had in this lifetime living on the street was respect. We don't look to be on no pedestal. We're not the greatest couple in the world. Um, we have our problems. We argue. We bicker. But the most important thing that we do best of all is we know how to show each other love. We know when one is not feeling happy. If something's on one's mind, we can look at him. Prime, what's wrong with you? Or he'll look at me. Are you okay, baby? Do you want to talk about some things? If you find somebody that you truly love, stay with them. You know, no matter what the problem or situation is. If you love that person, that love's going to be there. As long as that person loves you like you love them, that's true love right there. You can't get away from that. You know what I mean? If you walk away from that, you're a fool. Davinia and Brian are still without a permanent roof over their heads. Right now, home is a tent they set up each night on a street corner in northwest D.C., but they're both looking for work and hope that will soon change. Our next story on today's Hall of Fame show is about recovering from serious injuries like spinal cord damage or the amputation of a limb. When you've suffered an injury like that, relearning how to do even the most basic of things can be a huge challenge. But what about the not-so-basic things? A few months back, Jacob Fenston joined some local Washingtonians making a trip to Pennsylvania in search of some downhill thrills. Brandon Bland was injured a little more than a year ago. I'm able to do a little standing, a little walking with my walker. Like this morning, I brushed my teeth over the sink. I haven't done that. That's, it's been a year and a month since I've been able to stand at a sink in a mirror and brush my teeth. That's a big deal for me. Also a big deal, getting on a ski lift for the first time in his life. Three, three, lift. We're on. Thank you. Here we go. Have a great run. It's a bright, sunny morning as the chairlift climbs a few hundred feet to the top of the bunny slope. I, I really enjoyed the view. I've never done that before. <laughs> we, can, we can do that again, can we? Bland usually gets around in a wheelchair, but today he's on a monoski, a bucket seat mounted on a single ski. Mike McGregor is his volunteer instructor. I want to keep your eyes up, looking forward. Okay. All right, if you look down at the snow or like to see what these things are doing, you tend to lose your balance. All right. If I need to, if you need me to stop, don't stop. Or... Okay, look over at John. Easy, easy. Hey, perfect. Now, now look over at Megan. Don't lean, there you don't go. lean. There you go. All right. <laughs> I did it, though. Uh-oh. <laughs> you can't be scared to fall. 
At the bottom of the slope, Glenn's cousin, Terrence James, is waiting with a camera. Hey, I wouldn't have never thought he would have came out to Pennsylvania to go skiing. I ain't going skiing, but uh, as he's falling down, I'm taking all the pictures and I'm going to make sure mama, grandma, everybody else get to see the pictures. This past year hasn't been an easy one for Brandon Bland. He was partially paralyzed below the ribs. Happened on December 3rd in 2012. It was just after midnight at a club on U Street in northwest D.C. As we exited the club, like the guy just started shooting. He was shooting at the target, and I guess I must have been standing near the guy. Wrong place at the wrong time. A bullet struck Bland in the back. Well, at first, you had to get in your mind that you're in a wheelchair first, and then after that, it's it's a little defeating, for the lack of a better word. He's been working with therapists at the MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital in D.C., regaining movement and confidence. Now I'm starting to, like, venture out like this. I would have never did this a couple of months ago. Even though I was getting better, I still would have never even came to this trip. I would have made an excuse with myself. Well, like, he always called me, come out, come out, you know, and I never do it. I've been trying to get him to a clubs and go to go to a mall, go, get out of the house. He, ain't want, he don't want to do that. Like, you get in depressed modes, but you got to just pick yourself up. At first, like I said, I was probably my worst enemy, but out now, you got to motivate yourself. At the age of 14, I was electrocuted while playing on top of a train, boxcar, just being a silly kid, and got too close to an overhead power wire. Reggie Showers had both legs amputated below the knee when he was 14. Now he's a registered snowboarding instructor and one of the dozens of volunteers teaching people with disabilities on this recent morning. Showers walks and snowboards on prosthetic legs. Never let the amputation uh, stop me from achieving some of the goals that I wanted to achieve in life. Goals like racing motorcycles. As a career professionally for probably over 20 years. When he first tried snowboarding at a resort in the Pocono Mountains, there was no specialized adaptive program for people like him. He had to figure things out on his own. You know, my leg popped off a couple times. People were screaming and hollering because they didn't know I was an amputee. They go, oh my God, he lost his leg, you know. Keeping your prosthetic leg on is, perhaps no surprise, not that easy. So there's little things that me as an amputee snowboard instructor knows through experience, through trial and error, that uh, I can offer to the, the new snowboarder, the new adaptive snowboarder. On this recent morning, there are more than 50 people with disabilities going up and down the slopes here at Liberty Mountain. These two days of adaptive skiing instruction are put on by the group Baltimore Adaptive Sports and Recreation. My name is Pamela Leonard. I am the executive director of Baltimore Adaptive Recreation in Sports. Leonard is a recreation therapist, and she's put on this skiing event each year for the past 15 years. She says it's not just about skiing. Oh, I think it transcends into everyday life. You're successful here. You feel like, and I don't like we're normal, but you feel just like a person, like everybody else. Back on the slopes, Brandon Bland is still getting the hang of things. Don't focus on the little kids. Look yeah, away from the little kids. Look away from the trees. I've seen that red thing. I got nervous. <laughs> Ready to go up again? Yeah. Bland's cousin, Terrence James, has been watching the whole time, and he says he's proud. So is Bland. I'm proud of myself. I was never. I was going to back out. You know. <laughs> run after run, fall after fall. He doesn't want to quit. I want to keep going. Like. I knew they had to take a lunch break, and he was probably getting tired of picking me up. <laughs> so, but I'd do it again, of course. I'm Jacob Fenston.
It's time for a break, but when we get back, 100 years of history at a D.C. barbershop. How long have I been coming here, Frank? Oh, man. 40 years? Good 40. Good 40. Same barber for 40 years. It's just ahead, right here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Our theme today is Hall of Fame, as we bring you some of our favorite stories from recent months. In just a bit, we'll visit a barbershop that's been a community anchor in D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood through a century of ups and downs. But first, we'll start off with some local residents who are challenging the conventional wisdom about space and comfort and the relationship between the two. They're part of the tiny home movement, a trend that is gaining momentum across the country. They belong to a local collective that calls itself Boneyard Studios. They've created a sort of tiny home showroom on a triangular back alley lot just off of North Capitol Street. Walled off from the alley by a picket fence on two sides and a wire garden fence on the other, the plot currently holds four trailer-sized homes and plenty of room for a shared front yard and a good-sized garden. Jay Austin, the owner of one of the tidy little houses, is meeting me for a tour. He ushers me in the door of his take on the tiny house, a decidedly modern vision framed with dark wood slats on the outside and gray plaster on the inner walls. He calls it the matchbox. Uh, So back here is sort of the office, uh, bathroom over there. Up top is the bedroom. You get to the lofted sleeping space via a ladder that simply leans against the wall when not in use. Austin has also installed a flat-screen TV in his tiny bedroom. He even has a skylight with a shade he can open and close with the flick of a switch. Personally, I love the skylight. I sort of, when I started designing the house, I just drew a box for the skylight and drew the entire house around it. It's just wonderful. It's right above the loft, so it's great to uh, sort of look up and see the the few stars you can see over over D.C., uh, see the rainfall, the snow. Underneath the loft, Austin's work desk holds a full-sized Mac computer monitor and keyboard. Towards the center of the house, along one wall, is an ample countertop holding a sink and faucet operated with a foot pedal. On the opposite wall is a floating table, a surfaced anchor to the side of the house without any legs. It could comfortably accommodate Austin and a few guests, and he can store his full-size bar stools right underneath of it. He's done a lot with just 140 square feet. Really what I've cut down on here isn't so much you know workable space as just walking space from one room to another. You know, my office to my dining room is two steps, but the office is a normal-sized desk and the dining room is you know, a normal-sized table. Um, so I find that cutting out a lot of that walking space really allows you to downsize dramatically. You can build a tiny house for as little as $10,000 if you're not above salvaging some material from junkyards. Austin spent between thirty dollars and 40000 on the matchbox. 
He says the first tiny houses were really just miniaturized versions of traditionally sized houses with miniature furniture, miniature appliances, and shrunken doorways. But that is changing. I think what we've done really well here uh, at Bonyard Studios is have livable houses, places that are actually comfortable to stay in. There are still many different styles of tiny architecture, and the variety is evident even on the Boneyard Studios lot. Austin unlocks the house next door, which couldn't be more different in its sensibility. Inside, the first thing that jumps out is the triangular stained glass window in the loft. All right, cool, stained glass. This house, owned by Elaine Walker, is called the Tumbleweed Lusby House. Unlike the matchbox, it has a gabled roof, and inside it has separate rooms. It's adorable, right down to its diminutive three-piece bathroom. Oh yeah, and you do mean small. Tiny toilet. A couple of the boneyard houses actually have incinerating toilets, which burn black water, that's dirty toilet water, at about 1,200 degrees, evaporating most of it and leaving behind just small traces of ash. That gets to another goal of tiny homes, leaving a tiny environmental footprint. Austin takes me around the back of his house to show me the guts of his rainwater catchment system. So the shower, once it's hooked up, I have a very low flow of uh, half gallon per minute shower head with about five times less shower uh, water per minute um, than the average shower head. So if I were taking a five minute shower, that would be about two and a half gallons of water, maybe about seven, eight gallons of water a day for cooking, dishwashing. Uh, that adds up to about 10 gallons a day or 300 gallons a month. Austin says his rainwater system can catch about 100 gallons of water for every inch of rain that falls, and D.C. averages right around three inches of rain a month. So, sustainability, affordability, simplicity, could tiny homes solve all the challenges of modern urban living? Well, not even Austin will go that far. I would not in any way, you know, advocate for putting tiny houses all across D.C. in places where you might be able to put a little bit more denser housing. Uh, That said, there are many spaces like ours, this kind of uh, triangular alley lot that is too small to actually put a structure on. Uh, We can kind of use tiny houses as a great example of urban infill. There are also zoning and safety laws that make living in a tiny home tricky. None of the boneyard homeowners actually live in their tiny homes full-time. They aren't big enough to meet current D.C. requirements for permanent dwellings. The boneyard homeowners would like to see some of those rules changed, but Austin, who actually works at the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, acknowledges that there are reasons to be careful about changing regulations governing the size of residential dwellings. Federal and city officials are worried about unsafe housing and property owners looking to make money off of cramming as many people as possible into small spaces. There is some rationale behind some of these um, laws, but it would be great as this movement continues to grow, as uh, different cities adopt kind of different ways of dealing with this to see what works and what doesn't and move forward from there. But Austin also says he really isn't trying to convince people that his tiny house or any tiny house, is the answer to all of their problems. We have open houses every month, and I always say that my takeaway from, my my hope in doing these open houses is not to convince a single person to build a tiny house. It would be great if a few folks did, but um, really just to have people come into these houses, come into these 150, 200 200 square foot structures, look at them and realize maybe I don't need the 2,000-square-foot house. Maybe I don't need the 5,000-square-foot house. Maybe next time that I'm looking for a new place to live, I find 
what I need to suit me, what not what I can afford with my budget at my disposal. That was Jay Austin, owner of the tiny Matchbox home. If you'd like to see pictures of Austin's home and the other Boneyard Studios homes, visit our website. You can also watch a quick video tour of the Matchbox. It's all at metroconnection.org. In this small house made of brick and stone Built on laughter and all our dreams and hopes In this small house together we have grown Made a family, made us all a home Let's head across town now to S Street Northwest, where since 1925, D.C.'s Textile Museum has been mending and preserving everything from classical Persian carpets to 20th century Bhutanese rain cloaks. And now the institution is moving to a new home. Lauren Ober has the story. Chelsea Hick is hunched over a table with a hot glue gun in one hand and a rectangle of foam in the other. In front of her are pieces of gray cardboard and a couple of strips of cotton webbing. If you didn't know better, you'd think she was working on some sort of craft project. But for Hick, a technician at the district's textile museum, this isn't arts and crafts time. A lot of the material that we have are three-dimensional pieces that need special custom mounts of some form. So here we have a set of blocks to make batik block prints. So we've got some that are some kind of iron. We have some wooden ones as well. So we're just creating a system to basically house them. Hick is lovingly preparing the blocks to be packed up and put in boxes, along with nearly 20,000 other pieces of the museum's collection. To do that, she creates what are basically little carrying cases for each of the items that will occupy box number 618. So these straps will be glued to the bottom of the board so that when they are layered in the box, we can easily remove them and stack them. Oh, they're like little uh, little, handles. little handles. Yep. Over the past year, Hick and her colleagues at the Textile Museum have been preparing the collection for a move across town. From its current location on S Street Northwest, to its new home a couple of miles away in Foggy Bottom. In 2012, the museum entered into a partnership with George Washington University that resulted in a brand new exhibition space being built on campus. That means the entire collection, from Anatolian rugs to Indonesian sarongs to pre-Columbian sashes, has to get boxed up. But this isn't like when you move house and throw a bunch of stuff in boxes and hope for the best. At the Textile Museum, objects are being packed with the greatest care. Some of the methods might seem a little mm, unconventional. We also freeze the collection as part of the move. That's John Wettenhall. He's the director of the Textile Museum as well as the George Washington University Museum. And yes, he did say they freeze the collection. We bring the objects into a refrigerated environment so that we can assure ourselves that no infestations, bugs, or other things might be in the fabric so that when we move everything, they'll be in 100% safe conditions. The move to GW's campus is a big one for the Textile Museum, and not just because of the work involved in packing up. The move symbolizes a new era for the institution. Since 1925, the nation's premier museum for textiles has operated from its Calorama location, somewhat off the beaten tourist path. It's surrounded by embassies, and while it has a loyal visitor base, it's not really in the center of the action. John Wettenhall says the move will change that. 
what the university opportunity presents is a whole new audience and an academic underpinning that can really support the study of textiles, not just as objects of art, but also as cultural artifacts and as entrees to world cultures and ways to understand it. Neither Wettenhall nor GW President Stephen Knapp knows quite when the museum and the university started talking about a partnership. But here's what they do know. It's tough out there for arts institutions. And a collaboration like this can mean the difference between remaining open and relevant and balkanizing collections and shutting doors. By the end of 2014, the Textile Museum will likely be open in its new space. It will share part of the 46,000-square-foot building with the university's Albert H. Small Washingtoniana collection. The affiliation is part of GW's recent expansion into the arts. Something we were looking to do, which was to have, you know, a more powerful presence here, not just in the arts, but arts and culture more broadly. Because, you know, we're thinking about the Textile Museum because of its intellectual connection with a number of our departments, which include anthropology, Middle Eastern studies, Africana studies, not just uh, fine arts and art history, which, of course, is one of the connections. Stephen Knapp says the university also has a robust museum studies program, which will directly benefit from having access to a museum with a renowned collection right on campus. So to have a a truly world-class example of what you're studying right there in front of you, that level of engagement is, I would think, analogous to the way in which, you know, being in a laboratory with a a cutting-edge scientist is an exciting way to learn a discipline. At a time when even the president of the United States is taking pot shots at art history majors, it might seem kind of unorthodox for a university to be bolstering arts education. But Stephen Knapp doesn't see it that way. For him, the arts are the cornerstone of creative thinking and innovation. You know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of what are called STEM fields for the competitiveness of the American economy. But what the American economy really depends on is innovation. And more and more, the boundaries between the arts and technology are dissolving. And so we think that with this new presence in the university of a distinguished college of art, if we connect that to the other disciplines, you can start to make the kinds of interdisciplinary connections, cross-cutting relationships that will really foster innovation. So maybe in the future, a GW student studying, say, a traditional Albanian vest at the Textile Museum might see something more than black velvet, striped silk, and coral beads. And who knows where that might lead? I'm Lauren Ober. Our next story in today's Hall of Fame show takes us to a barbershop just south of Florida Avenue on 7th Street Northwest. It's called Greg's Barbershop. But as owner Frank Love explains, Greg, the man whose name is on the sign, well, he's not around anymore. No, I never met him. He, he was deceased before I came here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the original owner. We just kept the name, yeah, yeah. Frank Love moved here from South Carolina in the 1960s and steadily built up his clientele at the shop. Back in November, Emily Berman introduced us to Love and the rest of the gang behind and in the chairs of a century-old business. Greg's Barbershop is narrow with six mint green barber chairs going from the front door to the back wall. And the man behind chair number one is 24-year-old Ty Love, Frank Love's grandson. I guess football when I'm working out, so and the chance to melt. In the chair is a regular, Isaac O'Neill. This is like a family environment in here. I've been to a couple other barbershops in the area, and 
it's just like a business, and then they want you in, they want you out, they just want your money. But here, no, no, we, we are very reasonable. We have some come from Street. They say a regular haircut, thirty dollars. I mean, just a haircut. Gennaro Allard used to work at a competing barber shop down the street, but that building has been replaced with brand new condos. So he's been here at Greg's for six years, charging until recently just twelve bucks a haircut. In July, they bumped it up to fourteen. Uh, we still cheaper than everybody. It's what retirees and students can afford, and it still manages to pay the rent. Plus, Allard points out, no matter how tough the economy gets, this barber shop has managed to stay in demand. I don't care how bad you know, you, 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 you get a haircut, you get groomed. I don't know how they find the money. I'm just glad they do. <laughs> Allard brought some of his customers with him from down the street, and Ty is still building up his clientele. But the boss of the shop, Frank Love, has been seeing some of his customers longer than both of those two have been alive. How long have I been coming here, Frank? Oh, man. 40 man. years? Good 40. Yeah, good 40. Same barber for 40 years. From his seat in Love's barber chair, customer Ron Dixon has been looking out those front windows onto a neighborhood that's changed tremendously over the years. What was across the street? Brown's Corner and may I get my old gabardine pants? Dunbar Market. Yeah, the Dunbar Market, the uh, pawn shop. All this is over there where CVS is now, across the street. All of this was on that side, and that was all destroyed during the riots. This used to be his neighborhood barbershop, but Dixon moved away in the late 70s when drugs began to take hold of the area. I guess maybe it was just a little too depressing, so I had to go somewhere else. But that doesn't stop me from coming back. And people don't go through life with, but with so many true friends. And I, can, I do consider this old man standing behind me a, a friend for years. With that, Dixon extends his arm up, pointing to the mirrored wall behind him. It's lined with obituaries and photos of past customers. One way or the other, it was, you know, connected to the shop, you know, some kind of way, yeah. We've yeah, been to a lot of funerals over the years, Frank. Yeah, sure have, yeah. When you look up on the wall and see how many people that have passed, some of them, some of them acquaintances, some of them just people that I know by coming to the barber shop. When you have a true friend, you try to hang in there and stick by him. So he doesn't give me any any reduction in price. I'm still I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> Frank loves smiles and takes a brush to Dixon's shoulders, dusting off the hair shavings. Then in walks the next customer, Avert Shannon, a tall retiree who spent his career working at Shaw's Wonder Bread factory. He's been coming to get haircuts here for more than 50 years. So he cut mine, and he cut my son's, and cut my grandson. Shannon says he's seen the neighborhood change quite a bit, but is happy to report that Greg's has stayed pretty much the same, 100 years and counting. I'm Emily Berman. Up next, remembering a vanished way of life on Virginia's barrier islands. South end of the island used to be about a mile wide, and now it's about 300 yards wide, so most of where the town was located is now under water. That story and more coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear. We're trekking across our region today to revisit some of the more memorable spots we've reported from in recent months. One of those spots, which Rebecca introduced us to back in February, is the chain of barrier islands off the coast of Virginia. A hundred years ago, you would have found thriving towns on a bunch of these islands. But as Rebecca explains, there's now just a handful of people who remember that long-vanished way of life. If you zoom off the eastern shore's mainland through Hog Island Bay... Let's go uh, see how rough it is out in the bay. You'll spy a number of barrier islands, 23 naturally shifting land masses that help buffer the mainland from storms. Barry Truitt is a scientist with the Nature Conservancy. The nonprofit owns more than half of the islands, some of which were once inhabited by people. And if you see that tower out there on the horizon, that's where we're going. That's, uh, that's where the town used to be. That town was Broadwater, a village of about 100 to 200 people, depending whom you ask, on Hog Island's lower end. But thanks to Hog Island's natural erosion, coupled with a hurricane that pummeled the place in 1933, the village of Broadwater was pretty much abandoned by the early 1940s. Nowadays, it's little more than an expanse of sand dunes and ruins. But back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you would have seen a thriving rural community here. They had a post office, a general store, a Coast Guard station, a hotel, a school, a church, a lighthouse, not to mention a few dozen... We're going to go over what we call Lil Hog Island. Houses. I think every house here came from Hog Island originally, except the very last one on the road. And as 72-year-old Hog Island descendant Kenny Marshall is showing us from the front seat of his pickup truck, a number of those Hog Island houses are now in communities on Virginia's mainland, including Oyster, Wachaprig, Nassauatics, and this seaside village, Willis Wharf. Let me show you this. This was my mother's brother's house. That old gray house over there is where I live. That's my house. That was two separate single-story rooms, room upstairs, room downstairs, on Hog Island. And I tell folks that my house has more miles on it than my pickup. Kenny Marshall wasn't born on Hog Island, but his 76-year-old sister, Yvonne Marshall, now Yvonne Widgeon, was. The family goes back at least seven generations on the island. After my parents died, I really realized the importance of uh, the history of Hog Island and our family. My parents, my grandparents, they were gone. I could have asked them many, many questions that I didn't. So I had a little house that had come from Hog Island. It was the first post office, as a matter of fact. And we turned it into a museum. Through the years, surviving Hog Islanders offered up items like household supplies and tools to Yvonne's museum. When she eventually closed up shop, she donated all the stuff. We have over 7,500 artifacts. Here. And we've never bought nor asked for anything. They've all found their way individually. We're in Machapongo, Virginia, at the Barrier Islands Center, where Laura Vaughn is executive director. Since 1996, the Barrier Island Center has been preserving the heritage of Virginia's Barrier Islands through exhibits and educational programs. Inside the late 19th century farmhouse are a bunch of galleries, one of which is dedicated entirely to Hog Island. You'll see chairs from the short-lived Hog Island Hotel, the Lighthouse Keeper's Journal from 1872 through 1897, and on one wall you can read typed and hand-scrawled family recipes from the island's biggest holiday celebration, the 4th of July. What are some of the recipes for? Oh, well, here's one for oysters. It says we'd steam them, stew them up, fry, dip an egg, then flour. <laughs> you get to know the person by reading their own words. Other recipes include scallops, crackling bread, terrapin, clam fritters, and marsh hens. You kill the hens on a real high tide. 
the higher the better. So, I mean, you know, there's some wisdom. <laughs> and then you clean them and you skin them, cut them up and fry them. And that's, um, who is that, Eugene Bowen? Like the Marshalls, the Simpsons, the Dowdies, Bowen is a name you'll see a lot of in the Hog Island Gallery. This is some of the furniture they literally stood on to survive the storm of 33. May and Wendell Bowen. And they had just bought this furniture for $39 from Sears. But there's one piece of Bowen memorabilia that you won't find on display. This is a uh, drum spear or a fish spear. And what it is is a scaled-down harpoon head. My great-grandfather cast that out of bronze. And he used to use it on Hog Island. Norris Bowen was born on Hog Island on May 9, 1939. As a matter of fact, I was the last person born on Hog Island. And he says he's thought about donating his great-grandfather's fish spear to the Barrier Island Center. But it has a lot of sentimental value, so I'd like to keep it with me when I die, either my wife or my grandkids, they can bring it down. Norris left Hog Island in fall 1940. He wasn't even a year and a half old. So, like Yvonne Widgen, Norris doesn't really remember life on Hog Island. But after his family relocated to Willis Wharf, for a while they made a point of visiting Hog Island each year. Mom, my little sister, my two brothers and I, and my father, and we stayed all summer. And he worked. And actually, we worked too. We didn't realize it. But we would help him with the oysters and with the clams and so on and so forth. After the yearly excursions stopped, Norris would still return to Hog Island every now and again. In fact, he was stationed there for a spell with the U.S. Coast Guard. But if you ask him what he feels when he goes back now... A lot of longing, a lot of sadness, you know. But overriding that was like, this is where I belong, this is where I came from. That's why he wants to honor and preserve the history of his home, even if it looks nothing like it used to. But then again, he adds, neither does much of Virginia's eastern shore. Life on the eastern shore, as it was, is fast becoming a thing of the past because it's becoming so commercialized. There's more to living than trying to please people or having things. It all boils down to the way I was raised, and I was raised the way most Hog Islanders were raised. Be happy with yourself and what you do. And I am. I am. I'm Rebecca Shear. Want to see Virginia's barrier islands then and now? Well, we have historical photos as well as present-day shots on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay in Virginia for our next story, but head across the state to the tiny hamlet of Luckett's. Seven miles north of Leesburg, Luckett's is home to an antique store, a gas station, one stoplight, and a very special 40-year musical tradition. Jared Walker has the story. There's not much to do in Luckett's, Virginia. It's just a small cluster of homes at the crossroads of U.S. Route 15 and Stumptown Road. But on Saturday nights... This intersection becomes a beehive of activity, all centered on the historic Luckett Schoolhouse. This 100-year-old building now serves as a community center, but it's best known as the venue for perhaps the oldest bluegrass concert series in the world. Who's to say there's not some little place buried in the Ozarks that we haven't heard about, but to our knowledge it is. 
That's Paul Garvin, president of the Luckett's Bluegrass Foundation. This all-volunteer, non-profit organization has been the catalyst behind the series since 2007, but the event can trace its origins to a single person, a local bluegrass musician and promoter named E.J. Spence. On a blustery January day more than 40 years ago, Spence ran into the president of the Luckett Civic Association on the street in nearby Leesburg. They got to talking about the old schoolhouse that had been abandoned when a new elementary school was constructed. And the idea of using the building to put on bluegrass shows came up. Garvin says the fledgling series likely saved the dilapidated building from falling into total disrepair. It was in pretty bad shape at the time. Bluegrass was one of the things, perhaps the primary thing, that kept it going through a bunch of lean years, but they patched up the broken windows and things like that. Repairs kept the building functional until the community center underwent a $2 million renovation two years ago. But Garvin says modernization hasn't changed the intimate feel of the performance hall. If we have a full house, it's very tightly packed in there. And people put up with that because there's just something about the ambience. It's 7 o'clock on Saturday night at the old Luckett Schoolhouse. It's time for bluegrass. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tonight, the house is packed to the rafters. It's standing room only at the 225-seat venue. While the schoolhouse serves as a dramatic backdrop, Luckett's volunteer and concert MC Bob Veach says the crowds are the most important part of the event. I think one of the reasons the bands like to play here so much is that everybody who comes here comes for the music. Here, we're serious about our bluegrass. Veteran musician Dudley Cannell agrees. The only places that were available for us in the late 70s, early 80s, in the D.C. area were clubs, nightclubs. And actually, nightclubs is a stretch. And the people that came out to see us, they liked the music okay, but they came out to also socialize and to drink and to have a good time and blow off a little steam at the end of the week. Luckett's was this oasis for us. When we went to Luckett's the first time, we were actually shocked. We had an absolute listening crowd. It was thrilling. That band was the Johnson Mountain Boys, which went on to become one of the most important and popular bluegrass acts of the 1980s. Canal credits those wonderful Luckett's crowds with much of their success. It enabled us to completely change our show because we weren't trying to play over the den of beer bottles clinking and people talking. We played to the people that came there to listen to music. It was one of the most important parts of our early career. When the Johnson Mountain Boys decided to disband in 1987, there was little doubt in Canal's mind where the final show would be held. You chose Luckett's as your final concert. I wanted to ask you why. Tradition and loyalty, and I couldn't think of a better place to close the door on that on that band than the place where we started. The live recording from that show was released as a full-length album and eventually garnered a Grammy nomination. While that moment served as a high-water mark for Luckett's Bluegrass, one that might never be topped, the series is as strong as ever backed by crowds filled with enthusiastic regulars like Francis Carpenter. What keeps you coming back? It's just good music. My husband and I generally try to get out here 90% of the time, and the entertainment has been fantastic. 
Although the crowds are healthy, they skew to an older demographic. Luckett's volunteer and live sound engineer, Paul Hope, says this presents a long-term dilemma. Where do you see this event moving in the future? The only way I can see it going forward in the future is if we can find somebody to pass it on to, because we don't want it to end with us. Luckett's Bluegrass Foundation president, Paul Garvin, says his organization is committed to preventing that even if it means moving away from the traditional style with which Luckett's has long been associated. I look at the goal as keeping the program going. If it means going away from the traditional stuff and trending more towards the contemporary, we're going to have to do that. Garvin and the other volunteers realize that the event itself has become a tradition. It transcends the music. And just maybe, with a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, the old schoolhouse will be filled for 40 more years of Saturday nights. I'm Jared Walker. Jared Walker hosts Open Mic on WAMU's Bluegrass Country at 105.5 FM and 88.5 HD Channel 2 in Washington, D.C. He'll be airing performances from the 40th season of Luckett's Bluegrass Concert Series this weekend. For more information, visit bluegrasscountry.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Kentlands in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and the Glen Carlin neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. My name is Neil Harris. I'm 58 years old, and I live in the Kentlands, which is a new urbanist community in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Well, Kentlands was a planned community that actually worked according to plan, which is fairly rare. Uh, People come from all over to see the Kentlands and to try to understand why it works. The Kentlands is on the west side of Gaithersburg, just off of Highway 270. Uh, If you get off uh, 270 at 370 and then come up Great Seneca Highway, we're the large community on the left of of Great Seneca. I live on Main Street in the Kentlands, uh, which is a street uh, bounded by LiveWorks homes, which are much like you see in, the, in, in a big city like Washington, D.C., uh, a, a rows of storefronts with uh, residences and, and office spaces up above. The community is very walkable. It's, it's really built to be like a small town in the suburbs where it's self-contained. There's a shopping district. There are residential areas, and it's very easy to get from one point to another. And as you walk down the street... You typically will see people that you know and say hello and maybe go have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or or whatever. It's really a very, very strong sense of community compared to other places in the suburbs that I've lived over the years. My name is Steve Erickson. I'm 58 years old, and I live in the Glen Carlin neighborhood. The Glen Carlin neighborhood is located in Arlington. It is bounded on the north by Arlington Boulevard, on the west by Carlin Springs Road, on the east by Glen Carlin Park, and on the south by Virginia Medical Center. The land around here was surveyed by George Washington, and in the local library here we have some of his surveyor marks on a tree to mark his original um, land. In the late 1800s, a fellow named Carlin uh, moved here and built a resort in uh, an area that is now Glen Carlin Park. And his resort 
was available uh, to the folks from Washington, D.C. who would come out by train. The oldest uh, standing structure in Arlington is the John Ball House, and you can see that. Uh, you can take tours of it. Down the street from that is the original town hall that was built in the late 1800s. still serves as a town hall for the community. Glen Carlin is really an ideal place to live because it's a combination of a very modern neighborhood that has access to lots of shopping and lots of uh, entertainment. It's also a very old neighborhood with lots of history, lots of folks that have lived here a long time. So I think it's a good combination between the two. We heard from Neil Harris in Kentland and Steve Erickson in Glen Carlin. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. Or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Lauren Ober, Rebecca Shear, and Jared Walker. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Our editorial assistant is Lauren Landau. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll trek out to the more rural reaches of our region with a show we're calling Town and Country. We'll meet a woman on a mission to save farmland in southern Maryland. We'll find out what an old jail in Prince William County tells us about Virginia's history. And we'll talk with the owners of an eastern shore ferry service that was founded way back in 1683. We're dancing with other sailboats. We're running with the watermen. It's kind of like an orchestra out here. We go in circles around each other, and it's, it's a neat experience. It really is something very special. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in this week for Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.